0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at Eastsidesf.com. Now enjoy today's sermon. And then Matthew chapter two is where we're going to be this morning. If you turn there, and as you when you find it, if you wouldn't mind standing, out of honor reading of the scripture, Matthew chapter two. We'll be reading uh, the first 12 verses here. And uh, if you, I've got a heading in my Bible. It says, The Magi's Visit. And I don't know if you have a heading in yours, but this is about the wise men that we might call the wise men. Um, the Bible calls them the wise men. And uh, their visit to see Jesus Christ as a baby. The song just talked about it, how the wise men came, and, and they recognized that he was king. And they, re- they did not see him as just a baby. And we're going to see that in our text this morning and uh, this there 's a lot of a lot of texts that you could preach around Christmas time, and you might be thinking Christmas is over, we need to be done with it let 's move on but But I think we probably limit ourselves a little bit there 's a lot of truth to be preached out of the, the passages that talk about the incarnation of Christ that we kind of bypass the rest of the year, but they have a lot of help for us and this one does as I think as well I hope it will our focus this morning is on the wise men. And, our, and let's read down through verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They recognize him as king. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Is a reference to Micah 5, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not thou the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now, if you know the rest of the story, Herod's not wanting to go worship the child. If you read later in the chapter, he wants to kill the child. He's, he's trying to get information so that he can take this threat out. Verse 9, when they had heard the thing, the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. The message titled this morning may be predictable, but I think it applies, and that is that wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. And you might say, I've heard messages like this before. I could have known you were going to do something like that. Well, let me just tell you this, that there's nothing new under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes. If you came looking for something novel this morning, I'm probably not the guy that's going to please you with that, um, but I do think this, it may not be novel, but I think it can be helpful this morning. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and our time together. Father, we come and humble ourselves uh, before you, and I know I start most of my prayers like that, but it's a reminder to me that I am in, I'm submissive to you. You are my king, and, and Lord, I don't ever want to approach you with anything but humility, and I come to you and I ask you this morning that you would help this text to, to come alive. I pray that you'd help us to, to, uh, to apply it, that you would help us to see where it applies to us. God, I, I pray that you would help our minds to be changed about something or our, our hearts to be worked on about something. God, help us not to just sit here and admire you as a baby, but Lord, to submit to you as our king. Pray that you'd work and have your way. Bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, something happened this week that, that in, my, in terms of my understanding, hasn't happened since the Middle Ages, And that this past Monday night, December 21st, Jupiter and Saturn came so close to each other that they appeared as a brilliantly bright star in the in the sky. Did anybody see the Bethlehem star or try to see it this week? Okay, so a lot of you did. Uh, we, I tried to see it, but it seemed like every... I think I saw it this next night, but it was cloudy when, where we were on Monday night, so... Um, but apparently, though, these two, it's called a conjunction, where two planets come together, and they come so close together they appear to be as one. And this is the closest that, that uh, Jupiter and Saturn have been since 1623. And so people were excited about it. And uh, although these planets are still about 155, 100, sorry, 450 million miles away from each other, um, so I, I measured that myself. So um, it was visible for a few nights, apparently, I guess Monday night, ...was the best night to view it in the southwestern sky... ...and some say then this week, because it's Christmas week... ...some say then that that was the origin of the legendary star of Bethlehem... ...here in Matthew chapter 5. That's always been a a bit of a debate. There was, in fact, a conjunction of those two same planets... ...around the time of Christ's birth, according to history... ...and many people then assumed that that's what was happening here in Matthew 2... ...and there have been countless attempts to describe or explain the Christmas star... And some believe it was the event I just spoke about, two planets coming together in conjunction to form a single bright light. Some believe it was a comet. Others believe it was an exploding star or supernova. There's all kinds of of ideas out there and theories. But here's what we know we don't know. You like that? The fact that the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the star was means it doesn't really matter for us to understand the point of this account. Now, I personally believe that it was a supernatural working of God. Uh, it was his his way of pointing people to the Savior that that wanted to find the Savior. I think that's what it was. But what it tells us is if we don't know exactly what it was, then the value in this story is not to focus on the star itself, but to focus on the ones following the star in search of the Savior. These wise men, these magi, which is the Greek word for wise men, they were not kings, as the song would allow us to believe. Um, They were more likely astronomers, which explains their interest in the stars. And even though the song says, we three kings, uh, we know there are probably likely more than just three later in the account. We see that they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and maybe that's where the number three came from. Another misconception is that if you see a nativity scene, usually you see the shepherds and you see the wise men. And, and, uh, you know, it's not a big debate for me, but it's very likely that the wise men came much later than Jesus Christ's birth. If you look down in verse 11, they, they were come into the house. They saw the young child. They're not in a, they're not coming to a manger They're they're not, not seeing a baby. They're in a house now and it's a young child, not an infant. So I mean, the fact is that, you know, we know also that Herod later in the chapter sought to kill every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. And if that had happened right after his birth, he probably wouldn't have had to seek those that were two and under. He would have sought the infants. But you know, all those things, those are up to debate. We could talk about those a lot, but I, I really want to focus on why they followed the star. What, they were, what were they looking for? Why, why were they seeking? Well, being from Persia, which is likely where they were from, they meant that they had knowledge of the Jews who had been held captive in their part of the world uh, hundreds of years before. We know about the Babylonian captivity. We know that Babylon was conquered by Persia. And, and, but, and while many of the Jews came back to Israel once the Persians took over, we also know that there were likely many Jews that stayed in the Middle East. There were likely many that, that stayed and became potentially even mixed in with the population. Some people go as far to say that these wise men, they believe these wise men may have come from the Jewish ancestors and Jewish line. And I don't know that I believe that. We don't have a way of knowing that. Likely they were Gentiles. Um, but others believe that the writings of Daniel the prophet who, who actually lived in Persia, we know based on the book of Daniel, that he, his writings and his teachings Probably influenced these men. Some, hundred, some 550 years earlier, when Daniel was writing prophecies and, and, he was, and he was sharing scripture and he was having influence, that influence likely carried through hundreds of years later to these men. That maybe they knew the passage in Numbers uh, when it's prophesied that there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter uh, shall rise out of Israel. Surely they had a timeline of prophecy and. And they had put the numbers together, and, and we could look at that as well, but but that's not what I'm getting into this morning. Really, we don't necessarily know why, or have to know why they knew, or how they knew to be looking, we just need to focus on the fact that they were seeking a Savior. They were seeking, they were searching to find, And and honestly, that's the reason that we can call these men, wise men. Because they weren't wise just because they were astronomers. They weren't wise just because they might have been philosophers or maybe even astrologers. I'm sure they were intelligent, but I don't believe that their intelligence is what made them wise. There are a lot of intelligent people in the world today that I wouldn't call wise. Some of the smartest people I know or some of the smartest people in the world have rejected God, thus making them very unwise. Unwise. Some very intelligent people, they can't seem to make good or even lawful decisions in their lives. Intelligent doesn't mean wise. For these men, their wisdom is not in their intelligence. I truly believe that their wisdom it was in their response to the light that they were given. They, they had a small amount of light. In other words, they had a little bit of information. They, they likely didn't have all the information that the Jewish scribes and priests had, they had a little bit, yet they did all they could with that small amount of information. It could be all they had was a story about a star, all they had was a prophecy about a star rising out of Jacob, a scepter coming out of Israel, and maybe then something appeared in the sky and they did all they could to seek it. But what I love about the wise men is it's obvious they weren't just seeking information, they weren't just looking for more uh, to write in their books or more to put in their, uh, their, their journals. They were seeking not just information. They were looking for a person. So they were seeking for the king of the Jews. They were seeking him so they could worship him. And folks, the point that I want all of us to get this morning is that the wisest men in this room and the wisest women and the wisest children aren't necessarily the smartest people in the room. They're not the ones with degrees after their names and they're not the ones with the highest IQ number on their resume. No, the wisest ones are not the best debaters. They're not the most accomplished authors. Church, the wisest people alive are the ones who do everything they can in their power to seek God. Isaiah 55, 6, I just read it in my Bible reading this morning. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. 1 Chronicles 16, 11, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his faith, face continually. That's what I want to challenge you to do this morning with this Sunday after Christmas. That we stop de- defining we stop defining wisdom, how, how the culture tells us to define wisdom. And we start defining wisdom by the people that seek God. Are you seeking God? Did you come this morning because it's a practice or did you, become, did you come because of a person? And folks, that's a great question for Christians that have been in, in church a long time is because a lot, a lot of times after many years of, of following God and coming to church every Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday night, we start to come out of a practice and yet we should come because of a person. We should come not because it's a habit. We should come because we want to seek the face of our Savior. Your wisdom is dependent on how diligently you seek God. And if you don't get anything else, I want you to get that phrase. Folks, your wisdom is dependent on how diligently you seek God. So in a very simple way this morning, I want to compare our wisdom to that of these wise men. And there are three marks of the wise that I want to look at from this account. I think they could be a help to us. Three marks of the wise. A wise person first. A wise person will seek God passionately. A wise person will seek God passionately. Look at verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. And they came seeking God passionately. And I almost hesitate to use the word passionate or passion because it's overused in my mind. But it really does fit what they did. Think about it. They wanted to be in the presence of God so badly that they traveled hundreds of miles. Some believe they may have come six, seven, eight, nine hundred, a thousand miles. We don't know exactly where they started their trip. But they covered hundreds of miles. And they came probably on foot. Maybe on a camel. I can't imagine that a camel would be much more comfortable than walking. For months they went through deserts. They went over mountains. They they crossed streams and they left their homes. They left their families. They they left their comfort and they were willing to risk their lives on dangerous roads in bad weather. Does that sound familiar? To seek the presence of God. They weren't content with the star from a distance. They didn't look in the night sky and say, oh, that's a beautiful star. It probably signifies the coming of the king of kings, the king of the Jews. He's probably there, and it's good enough. Let's just write it down in our journals and go about our way. No, it wasn't enough for them to seek God from a distance. They wanted to be up close. They didn't just look at the night sky and see the star and say, oh, I, we know he's there. That's good enough. No, in verse 2, they, they, it says they, where they, they came saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They didn't, they didn't have a dropped pen. They didn't have somebody send them a, Google, a, a pen on Google Maps or Apple Maps and say, uh, because they don't work half the time anyway. They leave you out in a field where Walmart's supposed to be. They didn't have clear directions. They literally came to Jerusalem. Once they got there, they start asking, okay, we're looking for the king of the Jews. I mean, they didn't know exactly where they were even going, and they wanted to know where he was so they could worship him. This was all so they could worship. They didn't travel all this way to get something from God. They didn't come to doing this with their, for their own benefit. Notice that. They didn't come all those hundreds of miles to seek what they could get from God. They came bearing gifts. They came bearing treasures, things that were valuable to them so they could worship they didn't come saying, "Where's the King of the Jews? We need to have some of our needs met." Our needs met. I'm just mixing up my words. Our needs met. We didn't come. Have, we didn't come to have our needs met. We we came to present worship to God. We came to give something to Him. Worship means to bow on your face. It means to express the worth of another by bowing. Worthship. That's what worship is. They didn't come to get from God. They came to give. And folks, our culture has flipped this all around. Church culture can be this way in that when it comes to seeking God's presence through a church, many now say, they say, well, what's in it for me? Well, what programs do you offer for this child and this age group? And is the music what I prefer? And does it fit my mold? Does it fit my expectations? And listen, I, I'm all for offering things, and and I want to be as helpful to to as many people as possible. But I think that mindset, that mentality, is doing damage because seekers assume that seeking God and coming into His presence and worshiping Him is measured by what's in it for me. And that's the church culture that we're in. And and I do it, I'm doing it passionately this morning because I want us to understand how dangerous that is. It flips worship on its head and it makes it not about God, it makes it about the people in the pews. And this may not be a popular thing to preach on a Sunday morning, I understand it, but it's reality in that our church cultures have flipped worship completely a 180 backwards. Since when did worship become about the worshiper? That's not the mentality of the wise men. They were passionate about seeking and worshiping God in his presence. And we must be careful not to refashion worship into how it benefits us because it's all for God. And I'd love to have more time to contrast some of these things because I think the responses of Herod and the responses of the chief priests and the scribes have a lot to teach us. And so I just want to summarize it. The wise men made it all about God, but Herod made it all about himself. The wise men came to seek, to worship. Herod, though, it says that when he heard these things, he was troubled. When Herod realized that, God, that this was about God, it troubled him. He, because Herod was about himself. See, when Herod should have been seeking to worship God, along with the wise men and everybody else, he turned it into a threat to his throne. As soon as, as it wasn't about Herod, he went on the offensive, he was more passionate about his position than he was seeking God. And I could apply that in so many ways. You apply it yourself this morning about how when we, we, we can be passionate. We're passionate about worshiping God as long as it doesn't infringe on our rights or the things that we desire. And that's what I was talking about earlier. And that we're okay with God as long as he's a baby in a manger. But as soon as he becomes the king and we have to submit to him, it becomes a lot more troubling. That's what Herod was doing. But I also wish we had more time to contrast the wise men with the scribes and the chief priests in this passage because Herod calls the scribes and he calls the chief priests and he says, what's going on with this? Uh, He demanded of them where Christ should be born and they said, well, according to prophecy, the prophet Micah said that he's going to to be born in Bethlehem and and, uh, they were supposedly men who knew the scriptures. They did, they knew Micah's prophecy. But what's interesting here is they didn't see the star. And not only did they not see the star. Okay, these scribes and these, and these, uh, these chief priests, it says, they, they didn't see the star. But in, when they did hear about it, they didn't even bother to go to Bethlehem. So Jerusalem to Bethlehem, I haven't, I haven't been there myself. My, my father-in-law mother-in-law have. They say it's maybe five or six miles. It's not very far. But the the scribes and the chief priests, they didn't see the star and they weren't even willing to go to Bethlehem and see for themselves where the child, the Messiah, the king of kings might be laid So if we're going to contrast the wisdom of the wise men with the wisdom of the scribes and the chief priests, they were so complacent and they had been in church so long, they didn't even bother to go to Bethlehem and seek to worship him, uh, nor did they even look up in the sky to try to see the sign or see the star. They were that complacent and that unconcerned about worshiping when you have people around, they had people around them that were very, very concerned about worship and yet they couldn't be bothered with it. We could have a lot of application to us longtime churchgoers, couldn't we? And that we have lots of head knowledge about worship. But when it comes to actual worship and it comes to actually seeking the presence of God, we typically sometimes can't be bothered. So what we learn here is that these wise men, hundreds of miles on this trip, and all they know is there's a star. All they know is its general vicinity and what we learn is that we should take what we know and do what we can with it. Their passion drove them to seek God even without all the answers. And I have to ask this then as an application to this point about seeking God with passion. How passionate are you about seeking the presence of God? See, there are three types of people with passion in this story. You've got the Jewish priests and the scribes and the Herod, and you've got the wise men. But the Jewish priests and the scribes, they weren't passionate enough to do anything. They, they had all the light they needed, and they missed it. They weren't willing to seek God because they were in their comfort zones. They had lost their passion for true worship. It had become strictly an academic exercise. They weren't willing to go to any other links, extra links for God. Herod, he was passionate, but he was passionate about himself. He was threatened by a king because it meant he wasn't in control. And he wanted to be worshipped more than he wanted to worship. And then you have the wise men who were passionate for God's presence. They were passionate about their worship being about God and not about themselves. They were willing to go to great lengths to worship. So I'm asking you, where does your passion for seeking God lie? We have to be confronted with this. If these three types of people are represented on a scale, and over here you've got a one, your passion for worshiping God and having the presence of God is over here at a one. And over here you've got a ten. Sorry, Brother Andrew's up there making the camera go back and forth, okay? You've got over here a ten. This is passionate for worshiping God. I would say if I was to be, if I'm just reading this without any other information, I would say that the wise men are right here at a ten. They're so passionate about seeking God and being in God's presence that they're willing to travel hundreds of miles and put their lives at risk and put their, other, their lives on hold and to move away from their families for months, maybe a year, and to, and to be somewhere they've never been. They don't even know exactly where they're going, but that's how passionate they are about God and about his presence. If I was to have this scaled in, I would say that the scribes and the chief priests would be over here at a 2 Because they've been passionate enough to read the law and memorize the law and and understand it. But they're not willing to take the step beyond academic. They're not willing to take a step and even go to a short length to worship God. And then I would say over here, Herod's on a one in that he's passionate, but not for God. He's passionate about himself. And I'm asking you this morning, how passionate are you about God's presence in your life? How passionate are you about worship? in your life are you over here at a one with herod or are you over there at a 10 with the wise men are you willing to go to great lengths to seek and worship god you say well we came here this morning didn't we snowing outside and i appreciate it i think that's a sign i think it means something that you'd be willing to get out of this but i'm asking what does it take to stop you from worshiping sometimes what does it take for you to tune out when, when, when it's time for worship or when God's trying to speak through his word to your heart and he wants to draw you closer? How much does it take to tune you out, to distract you from God's presence? Your passion for God can be seen in how much effort you make to seek his presence. Are you going through the motions when you come to church? Do you take the time to seek his presence at home? Because if all you ever did was seek God's presence on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, you're missing out on a life of God's presence the rest of the week. How passionate or eager are you when it's time to enter into the presence of God? When it was, I mean, when it was time this morning to walk in the doors, was it with drudgery and, or were you eager? Mark number one of a wise person is to seek God passionately. Number two, the second mark of a wise person is to seek God joyfully. Look at verse nine. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The wise men, they leave Jerusalem and they look up to the sky and they see the star and it's moving. Now this is an indication that the star was a supernatural phenomenon because they followed it to Jerusalem, but apparently they're the only ones seeing it and maybe it even disappeared once they got there and now they're trying to find it. So they go asking, well, it either reappears or it becomes clear to them again. And when they leave, they see the star moving toward Bethlehem and it parks in the sky over the place where Jesus is. Now, to me, this does not sound like Jupiter and Saturn hundreds of millions of miles away. It sounds like God is doing something supernaturally so that the ones that hey, he's given a little bit of light to and they're truly seeking him, that they can, they, they can follow him even more closely. Amen. Hebrews eleven six, by the way, says that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen. See, I believe this whole account is evidence of that. See, God reveals more to the ones that seek him than he does to those that are complacent or threatened like the scribes and Herod. See, if you ever wonder why God seems to do real work in certain people's lives than in others, it could be because he rewards those that diligently seek him. And maybe you wonder, well, why doesn't God speak to me at invitation like he does to them? I mean, they respond every time and I haven't responded in like years. Well, it could be that God is rewarding those that diligently seek him. And maybe in your life, you've grown complacent to the presence of God in your life, and you have not been seeking God, and so God has no obligation to reward those that don't seek him. The amount of God's work in your life is directly related to how much you seek him. These wise men, they certainly sought God and they did it with joy. And I love verse 10. It's one of my favorites in the passage. Look look at, at Matthew's description. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. This isn't just single joy. It's not just double joy. It's not just triple joy. It's quadruple joy. It says they rejoice, there's the first joy, and with exceeding, it was really, really big joy, with great, really, really, really big joy, joy. Four different descriptors of the word joy or or joy themselves, rejoicing, exceeding, great joy. When they knew, folks, listen, when they knew that they were getting close to the presence of God, they were full of joy. Four times the joy. The real presence of Christ in our lives should cause us great joy. To know that we could enter into his presence, we should be joyful. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Folks, we should have joy when we enter the presence of the Lord. I mean, just to know that he would meet with me. The God of heaven, the creator God, would want to spend time in my presence. It should just blow my mind. But sometimes I wonder if we've been saved so long that we've lost sight of how amazing it really is that God would want to spend time with us. I mean, I think about when you're, I mean, when you're, first, you're first dating. And, and I remember these, these moments with my wife. And, you know, every time you, we would talk, we were at long distance while we were engaged. She was in California and, and I was just tried, waiting for her parole. And then I was, just kidding. I don't know where that came from. That was not in my notes. Now I'm in trouble. She was in California. I was in Oklahoma serving on staff. And I remember every night, you know, it was back when you didn't have minutes all the time. You had to call between certain times at night. And I had to wait till like midnight my time to call her. And I just couldn't wait to call her. And I mean, every night we would talk and we would talk. And I didn't get much sleep that year. But we had talk, and I couldn't I mean, but it was not a drudgery. Because I was in love with her. M. Yeah, we're still very much in love. <laughs> very much in love. It's way better than it was back then. I'm gonna move on. You know what I was gonna say. I'm done. So at first, you're excited. After a while, the excitement wears off and And, you know, that's the way it can be with us Christians with God, too. You know, we should anticipate meeting in the presence of God as much as we did the day we were saved. And yet, sometimes us old-time Christians lose sight of the joy that's supposed to accompany the presence of God. That's the way it's supposed to be. Do you anticipate God's presence with joy? Or has the joy dissipated when you woke up this morning? Were you thinking, oh, great got to get out in the snow it's snowing i just would rather sleep i i mean is that how it was i mean we're we're human i understand that you don't always feel like you're supposed to feel sometimes you just have to do what you're supposed to do however you feel but if you linger there too long then there's a concern because where's the joy about coming and meeting with god's presence in god's presence Where's the joy that used to accompany you when you first started coming to church and being around God's people? I mean, God help his people who are no longer joyful about being in his presence. So the real presence of Christ in our lives, it should cause us joy, but it should also produce great joy. When Christ is present in your life, joy is a byproduct, according to Galatians 5. You can't, you can't have the presence of God walking in the Spirit in, the, in walking in the fullness of the Spirit. Galatians 5, you can't walk in the presence of God and not have it affect you. It will show up in the, in the love and the joy. It will, it will be produced as we walk with God. And folks, so listen, try to follow. If, if joy is not there, it's because we're not choosing To be in God's presence every day. Because it's a byproduct of walking in the spirit. So it's no wonder then... That so many of God's people view Sundays and Wednesdays as a drudgery. It's because every other day of the week... They're not walking in God's presence... Which isn't producing joy... Which makes God's presence at church a less than joyful occasion. They don't have joy to enter into the presence of God because they're not walking in the spirit and having joy produced in their daily lives you want to make church a lot more special walk in the spirit monday through saturday so the real presence of christ should cause us to be joyful it should produce great joy and it should also be we should understand it's the only source of great joy so why what are you depending on to bring you joy what are you looking for to bring you joy outside of God's presence? Because Psalm 16, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The only source of joy is the presence of God. On the flip side, let me just say this. That also means that if we're in God's presence, we can have joy no matter what we face. Because if our joy is depending on God's presence... If I'm in God's presence on a consistent basis, it doesn't matter the tough circumstances. It doesn't matter the tough situation, the tough relationship thing I'm going through, the financial problem, the health problems. Joy is available to those who seek the presence of God. Wise men still seek him. They seek him passionately. They seek him joyfully. And third, the third mark of a wise man or wise person will seek God sacrificially. Look at verse 11. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it's only natural the first thing they did when they saw the king was worship. And it's only natural if you see Jesus Christ as king, you worship You fall on your face and you worship. It's natural. He's the creator God. We are sinners. And that recognition and that humility, it should cause us to give sacrificially. When I realize that he's the king and yet he allows me into his presence, it's the least I could do to give him every single thing that I have. When you consider who God is and who we are, the natural response is sacrifice. Think about their gifts. They, they brought treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and we could talk about the meaning of the gold and the frankincense of the myrrh. The gold was about Christ's royalty, that he's a king. The frankincense was an incense that, that pictured Christ as priest. that was used in the temple. That's his divinity. The myrrh is, is, a, is a burial spice. And it, was, uh, it could picture that Jesus Christ would someday uh, be, be killed and be uh, be uh crucified for our sins that the messiah they would have known the messiah would be cut off if they had access to daniel's writings and we could focus on those things and i have before it's a fine study we could focus on what those gifts meant but i think that's missing the point here see if for the wise men they may or may not have even known what all those things meant I truly believe that the point of these details is not so much the meaning of each gift... ...as it is that each of these gifts was valuable to the giver. It says they brought their treasures. They were valuable. They were meaningful to the ones who gave them. And, and you know, if it means something to you... ...then it would be a great sacrifice for you to give it. It doesn't matter if it has any real value to anybody else if it means something to you, and we have things like that in our lives that that have value to us on a sentimental level of some possession that we have, and it just means something. And I've got drawings from my kids that when they were little, they wouldn't mean anything to you, but they're treasures to me. When something means something to you and it has value to you and it's a treasure to you, for you to be willing to give it up is a sacrifice. And I think that's the point. As we consider the fact that they worshipped and they gave gifts, they gave treasures of great value, it's clear there's nothing these men weren't willing to do for Jesus Christ. There was nothing they weren't willing to give up to be in the presence of God. There were no links they weren't willing to go in order to seek the presence in the face of God. And in a setting that is all about Christmas presents, a wise person will go to whatever links possible to be in God's presence. See, there's nothing we shouldn't be willing to give up for God if it means his presence. If it means losing some sleep, his presence is worth it and that's a battle we all fight. If it means losing a day off and maybe you grew up used to having Sundays to play and now that you're a committed child of God and you're maybe bemoaning the fact that on Sundays you don't have that second day off a week, listen, his presence makes it worth it. I know it's not always easy, but if it means I can be in the presence of God, worth it. If worshiping God and giving sacrificially means we can be in his presence, there should be no links. We're not willing to go for that. Are you willing to sacrifice for the presence of God? I mean, I think so. You're here again. You're here this morning. But let me ask it this way. Of all the gifts you gave this year, what gift should you give to the Lord so that he knows that he's the most important thing to you. Did you think about what you might give to the Savior this year? Of all the things that we give and all the gifts we give to each other, um, is there something in your life that you need to give to God that's holding you back from finding His presence in your life like you should? I mean, what's holding you back from being in the presence of God? Is it is it a bad habit? And it just keeps you and God at a distance. It's time to give it to God. Is it complacency? You've been saved a long time, and you don't really have a lot of passion for worship, and you don't really have a lot of joy when it comes to coming into the presence of God. And you don't—you're not really sacrificing a whole lot. You're not really excited about it. Well, it could be that it's time to lay aside that complacency, so you can have God's presence in your life again. Is it laziness? there's some steps you're not willing to take because it's just a lot of work. Do you have something in your heart, is there a root of bitterness in your heart? Is there something in your life? And you know, we know that God is holy. We sang about it and we are not. And we know that if we have sin in our hearts, then we can't be close to God. Maybe our sin, maybe there's a sin of bitterness, a root of bitterness or the sin of unforgiveness or there's a sin of anger. And that is keeping us from the presence of God. There's some sin or some bad habit or, or complacency in our lives. Or, or maybe it's something practical like your debt. And because of your debt, you're having to work an extra job or work extra hours. And that debt is keeping you from the presence of God. Maybe it's just, I mean, maybe it's just some other practical thing in your life. And maybe not even some big spiritual thing. Maybe it's just. Your work schedule, whatever it is, this year of all the things that we could give to other people, we need to make sure that we consider the king of kings in our gift giving and say your presence is so important to me, I'm willing to give up whatever it is because your presence makes it all worth it. You can bring a sacrificial gift to God this year that would help your relationship with him. You just have to be willing to make the sacrifice. And I'm asking you, what one gift, what one change would make the biggest difference in God's presence in your life this year? And you might be asking, well, what's in it for me? Well, that's the wrong mentality first because, but there's plenty in it for us. We, the joy and the blessings of God, for one. But besides that, it's not about us. It's about him. He deserves our passionate, joyful, sacrificial seeking. He deserves our worship and our giving, whether or not we feel like it, whether or not we ever get a result from it, whether or not he ever benefits us. But he does. But whether or not he does, he deserves it no matter what. But second, it's not about what God might do for you. It's about what he's already done for you. Father-in-law, he he preached a Christmas Eve message this week. First 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I don't think about that as being a Christmas verse, but it really is. He came to this earth to save sinners. And you say, well, what, what will God do for me if I put him first and I, and I seek him passionately and I, I, I seek him sacrificially and I seek him joyfully? What will he do? It's not about what will he do. It's about what he's already done. He left Jesus Christ, left his father's side. And wasn't born as a king on a throne, he was born as a baby in a manger. And he lived an unassuming life. Nobody really even knew who he was until he got to be about 30 years old and he started teaching. And, and he made himself known as the Messiah. And when all the Jews should have embraced him and said, the presence of God is here with us. Let's, let's, let's embrace him. No, Jesus Christ was rejected rejected to the point that they arrested him and they crucified him, put him on the cross to die for the sins of mankind. And you say, well, what, what's in it for me? I'm telling you, that's what's in it for us. He already went to those lengths. And you know why? So we could be in his presence for eternity. Here's a savior who sought us passionately. I mean, willing to go great distance. He sought us joyfully. Hebrews 12 indicates that when Christ was on the cross, he looked ahead to the joy that was set before him. He sought us passionately. He sought us joyfully. He sought us sacrificially. He gave up all of those things, kept his divinity. He's still the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but just happened to be wrapped inside a human baby. He gave passionately, he sought us sacrificially, he sought us uh, joyfully so that we could be in his presence for eternity. And my question to you then, or my statement is, if the God of heaven was willing to seek us passionately and joyfully and sacrificially so we could be in his presence for eternity, we should be willing to do the same and more. Seek him passionately, Seek him joyfully. Seek him sacrificially. And you know, you're not called wise if you're intelligent. You're not called wise if you're successful or intellectual or influential or popular. You're not wise just because you can explain some complex things or stand before others and give a lecture. No, those that are wise take the light that they have. And they do all they can to seek God with it. And in this case, the wise ones seek God passionately, joyfully, and sacrificially. Why? Because the God they were seeking sought them the same way. So I'm asking then, are you seeking God's presence? Has that been a mark of your life in 2020? Where's your passion for his presence? Not just the practice, but the presence. How's your joy when it comes to coming into his presence? Is there joy, anticipation, excitement, gladness? And then what's your sacrifice for his presence? What do you need to give up to give God this year so that he knows you're serious about his presence? Wise men still seek him. Wise women still seek him. Wise children still seek him. Let's stand together.